Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. This week, we kick off our fall sermon series, Hometown Exiles. This sermon series is based around 1 Peter, which helps ground us in our Christian identity, both within ourselves, but how we reflect that to the outside world. You're listening to Hometown Exiles by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from the first letter of Peter, 1 Peter 1, and I will read the first 12 verses. Before I do that, let me say this is the beginning of a whole sermon series on the book of 1 Peter. For the next seven weeks, we are going to uh, talk about this, this letter. And why, why, why 1 Peter? Why a sermon series on 1 Peter? Because 1 Peter is one of the best books when it comes to defining Christian identity for defining who we are as Christians and the posture we carry before the world, okay? And that's a really important question right now. As the world gets more complicated and maybe, maybe a little bit more hostile, who are we as a church? How do we relate to the complicated and sometimes hostile world? Um, and churches disagree mightily about that, right? They argue about that. So instead of arguing, let's go back and hear what Peter says to those first century Christians about their posture in the world. Okay, let's read the first 12 verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadonia, Asia, and Bithynia, who've been a chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for in his great mercy he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation to be revealed at the end of time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These griefs have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances at which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and then the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, 
when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so as we read that, what what does Peter say about our identity as Christians, about our identity as a church and our posture out there in the world? One little phrase, as I studied and read this this week and in the weeks before this, that jumps out at me about our identity is the one right there at the beginning in verse 1. Peter says, To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Who are you as a church? What are you? What's your identity? You are scattered exiles. Paradise. Didemois diasporas in the Greek. Scattered exiles, sometimes translated as scattered aliens or scattered strangers. But as that idea, you're exiles, the same idea, exiles in this world. It's an interesting word, exiles. What's an exile? Well, an exile, as you know, is a person who's not living in their homeland, right? They've been taken out of their homeland, sometimes by force. And now they're forced to live in a new place that is not their true home. They're exiled. So um, the Israelites, the Babylonians came in 586 BC, took them out of Jerusalem and took them to Babylon and they lived there for 70 years against their will. We say they were in exile. So Peter is saying, are you how you guys are? You're like, like those exiles. But here's the strange thing. We know the people to whom Peter was talking, right? He tells us they're from Cappadocia and Bithynia and Asia. They are not exiled there in any physical sense. This is the place they've always lived. The people to whom Peter is talking are not living in some strange land. They're living in their their hometowns, most of them. They grew up in Cappadocia. They've always lived in Bithynia. They're still living in the same town that that, that they they were born in. They they go to the marketplace. They see the same faces. They have the same majors that they had their whole life. And yet, Peter calls them exiles. How can they be exiles when they're living in their hometown? And this is no slip of the pen or the quill, as the case may be, on Peter's part. He obviously intends for them to have this sense of themselves as foreigners because later in chapter 1, he calls them foreigners. You know, verse 1, he calls them exiles. Later, he calls them foreigners. He says, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Exiles, foreigners. So strange. It would be like Peter coming here to preach and saying, greetings to you exiles, Scattered exiles in Jenison and Hudsonville and Zealand and Borculo. We would say, well, what? I've lived here my whole life, Peter. I I grew up here. I've never lived in another place. I like it here. How can you call me an exile when I'm living here in my hometown? It's this paradox that gives the name to this entire sermon series, Hometown Exiles. What does it mean to be a hometown exile? Why does Peter call these people exiles when they're living at home? Peter calls them exiles because 
when Jesus Christ came into their life, they were completely and utterly changed. When they went down into the waters of baptism and were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they weren't just changed a little bit. Jesus didn't just do some minor renovations on their life. He didn't just put on a coat of paint and hang new drapes. They were stripped down to their foundations. In fact, they were given completely new foundations in Jesus Christ. And Peter's trying to communicate that. He uses the image of new birth, right? You've been born again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he has given you new birth into a living hope. If you're born again, if you're reborn, it's not just, you know, minor renovations. You become an utterly new person. You are a new creation. New birth certificate. New family. New home. New identity. New life. And again, this, this profound sense of deep change, like a new birth, is something that Peter uh, doesn't just say here. He repeats it. Within the next 30 verses, he'll use that image two more times. Chapter 1, verse 23. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. Chapter 2, verse 2. You are like newborn babies. And like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. So you're not just a little bit new, completely new, new creations. In the old days, these new Christians were going around their life in Cappadocia and Bithynia and just doing their old pagan stuff, you know? Trying to find a little thing to amuse them there, building a little security there, trying to have a little fun, whatever the day would give. Living a shallow life, Peter calls in chapter 1, verse 18, an empty way of life, that pagan way of life. But then someone came and preached the gospel and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they went down into the waters of baptism and they came up and when they came up, everything was different. They were completely new. What is this like? Maybe something like this. A suburban middle school student, let's say an eighth grader, from a nominal Christian family, goes off to an explicitly Christian camp with his friend who takes him there. And it's there for two weeks. And for two weeks, he's completely surrounded by Christian community, profound Christian community. He hears the gospel every single day. Every night, he gets together with his, his, uh, his cabin mates, and they talk about deep things soul-deep things. And he's never talked about stuff like that before with other people. I mean, he's thought about those things when he's lying in his bed at night. Who am I? What does it mean? He's never talked about them out loud. And now all these people, are, kids his own age, are talking about them and they're praying for each other. And he feels completely accepted to such an extent that he, he, he doesn't just have to pretend to be strong. He can give his vulnerabilities to these other kids and they still love him. They still accept him. And the Holy Spirit starts to work in his heart and he accepts Jesus and he gets changed. And then he goes home. And all around him, it's the same talk that he heard growing up. Shallow stuff about success and stuff. and Just all of a sudden, all that talk feels wrong to him. It feels strange. 
It's like he's in exile in his hometown. Or maybe the change is something like this. A college sophomore spends an entire semester or sophomore year in Africa working in a mission and relief agency. And she goes into a really poor area. She sees poverty that's way beyond anything she's ever seen before. She's so far from home. It's terrifically hard, but it's also wonderful. Because some of these people have nothing, and yet they're more generous than just about anyone she's ever seen. And they live with this joy. And, um, you know, she works in this multiracial environment, which is invigorating to her. And even though she does, without all sorts of usual luxuries, she finds that even without those things, she's able to live this full and this joyful life. And it's completely changing to her. It's overwhelming to her. And then she goes home. And everybody's focused on consumption and you know, how many likes you get on Instagram. And it just feels strange. She feels like an exile in her hometown. When Jesus comes into the life of these Christians in Asia Minor and Bithynia and Cappadocia, he doesn't just change them a little bit. He makes them new creations. He makes us new creations, new families new identity. Reading 1 Peter and hearing about this, this tremendous change that Jesus works in the life of those Christians makes me reflect on my own life and the way that I relate to the world around me. And it made me realize, and I realized this actually uh, this week as I was lying in bed at night thinking about this sermon, which is a kind of an occupational hazard for ministers. I was lying there thinking about th this sermon, comfortable in my own bed, and I said, you know what? I don't feel like an exile. I don't feel like an exile at all. I feel very much at home. I love Grand Rapids. I raise my kids here. I like my job. Um, I've got great friends. I've got great neighbors. Shout out to the Skolmas and the Vinsledrites. I've got neighbors who are the kind of people who will close your garage door if you leave for the weekend and forget to do it. They'll do it for you. I love it here. And not only do I not feel like an exile in this place, I work at feeling more at home. I push against feeling like an exile. You know, I, I decorate my house and make it cozy so that I will feel at home. I put in a, a new gas fireplace last year so it feels homey. I mow my lawn. I spend an hour mowing my lawn every week. Why? Because I like to sit out in my backyard and see my nice cut lawn. It makes me feel at home. I don't feel like an exile. Is there something wrong with me? Has my spirituality, has our spirituality lost its edge? This week, I read an analogy from a pastor in Denver, Colorado, a guy named Brandon Washington, who I don't know at all. But he told this interesting story that is, uh, fits this topic. He told a story about uh, tree trimmers who came to his condo. He lives in a condo, and tree trimmers came to his condo association and trimmed all the trees in the neighborhood. All the trees except the tree that was in his front yard. He had this big shaggy tree in his front yard, and the tree trimmers trimmed all the other trees, didn't trim his tree. So Pastor Washington came out of his house and said, Hey, guys, come on, what about this? Look at this tree, and he's trimming. Why don't you trim my tree? And the tree trimmer said, I'm sorry, sir, we're not going to trim your tree. Why won't you trim my tree? Well, sir, your tree is a fruit tree, it's a pear tree, and our contract stipulates 
that we only treat the other trees, we don't do the fruit trees. Pastor Washington said, fruit tree? What are you talking about? I've been living here seven years. It's not a pear tree. I haven't seen a single pear growing on that tree. And the arborist, the tree trimming guy said, oh, well, that's because it's a domesticated pear tree. That tree has been specially bred so that it won't bear fruit. Because, you know, if you just have a regular old pear tree in your neighborhood, it drops all those pears all over the lawn and it makes a mess. People don't like that. They like their lawn. It's nice and careful and smooth. And, and all those pears, they just, they just make a mess in the neighborhood. So we, we bred all that fruit out of them and now they fit right in. Is that a picture of my spirituality? Of our spirituality? Are we domesticated pear trees? Domesticated Jesus trees? Read Peter's letter and you will know that those early Christians that he's talking to are not domesticated. Their faith stands out in their culture. They are dropping fruit on the front lawns of their neighbors and so much so that their neighbors are starting to get uncomfortable. And we know this because if, if you read the whole letter, you get a real sense that this is a church that's starting to feel the weight of persecution and opposition. You see that already in our passage in verse 6. Verse 6 says that they've already started to suffer grief in all sorts of trials. And then in chapter 2, it says that people are accusing them of wrongdoing. And then in chapter 3, it says that they've been the victim of malicious speech. And then chapter 4, Peter talks about them going through a fiery ordeal. And you, you put it all together and it's clear that there's opposition. And what's going on? Well, probably they're just not participating in pagan culture like they used to. And they used to go to all the parties. They used to have a great old time. They used to blend right in. But all of a sudden, they're not going to the parties. All of a sudden, they're not going to some of those pagan festivals, to the Roman gods. You know, everyone else is going and making the little sacrifice to the Roman gods that everybody in the city makes, and they're not doing it. And people are looking at them and saying, what's the matter with you? You're not very good neighbors. You're not very patriotic. You're not participating in society. How bad did the hostility get? Well, we don't know exactly how bad it was for the people in 1 Peter's day, which I judged to be around the mid-60s, 60 AD. Um, but 50 years after that, so this would be about 110 AD, uh, we have a letter from a new governor in Bithynia. And Bithynia, you'll remember, is exactly one of the places that Peter is talking to. He's talking to the Christians there. And this new governor, whose name was Pliny, uh, was laying out his policy towards these Christians who were living in his lands. And he wrote a letter to the Emperor Trajan, and this is his new policy. He said, I plan to stop people in the streets and ask them if they are Christians. And if they say yes, I will ask them again. Only this time with a severe warning against the repercussions. And I'll ask them a third time. And if they continue to persist in saying that they are a Christian, I will arrest them and have them executed. For I am convinced that their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. The emperor wrote back and said he approved. Apparently these people 
had become so full of the fruit of Jesus Christ. Apparently, these people had become so distinct with the love of God of Jesus Christ, their Lord. Apparently, these people were so good at loving God and loving their neighbors and were so different from the rest of society that the rest of the society was getting angry at them and pushing away these weird folk to the point of death within 50 years. Now, I don't want to be persecuted. I certainly don't looking for martyrdom. But I am looking for a kind of faith that stands out. What is it about these hometown exiles? What was it about the fruit on their tree that made them stand out so much? What specifically were they? Who specifically were they that made them so noteworthy? That's the topic of our sermon series. For the next six sermons, that's what we'll be looking at. We'll be looking specifically at the character of a hometown exile. And for today, let me just leave you with this observation about hometown exiles. I said that they were probably starting to undergo pretty severe persecution. They were going through fiery ordeals and terrible times. Now, given that, you might expect that when Peter wrote them to these people going through persecution, the tone of his letter might be kind of dour and really sympathetic, almost like a condolence letter that you might send. Oh, you guys, I am so sorry that you're going through all this. This must be really, really hard for you, you poor people. May the Lord light a small candle of hope in the midst of your oppressive darkness. That's what you might expect. But is that what we get? No. We get the opposite of that. Peter comes out in this letter and he talks to these people like they have the happiest lives you could imagine. They talk to these people like someone who's, who's won the lottery and had their first grandchild within the same week. It doesn't get any better than that. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his mercy, he has given you new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he has given you an inheritance that can neither perish, spoil, nor fade, kept in heaven for you. He's filled you with an inexpressible joy. Even angels long to look into the things that you guys have seen. My goodness, you guys have it good, says Peter. And of course, Peter's doing what all the New Testament writers do. Speaks into our worry and into our trouble and says, don't be afraid. You belong to Jesus. You will always belong to Jesus. You have an inheritance that can never be taken away. So do not be afraid. So in conclusion, let me say to you, as you face your troubles, and you know what those are, we all know what those are, they're all around us. And as we acknowledge that sometimes those troubles fill us with an inexpressible grouchiness, let us recognize that the character of a hometown exile is not inexpressible grouchiness or fear, but inexpressible joy. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given you new birth into a living hope through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your Lord. And he has given you an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, beloved of Jesus Christ your Lord. Amen. Let us pray.
Lord God, we thank you that um, in you we have an unshakable inheritance rooted in your death and resurrection, rooted in these promises that uh, you have an inheritance kept for us, and that every day as we move from our promises to our destiny, we are shielded by your love. Lord, I pray that these deep promises may put an inexpressible joy deep in the center of each of our hearts as we go through the trials and struggles of our world. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.